Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Seeking Human podcast. We are super excited this time to be joined by professional nerd. You told me not to say that, but I'm doing whatever I'm told not to do. Hannah Fry, who is calling in from the UK. She's an author of Hello World. She is a mathematician. She's a BBC podcaster, journalist, uh, reven- re- uh, reno- renovationalist. What, what is that? <laughs> I think you, that you, works. It that works. works right? really, you you yeah, do renovating we'll and you're a revenationist. Um, <laughs> Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Are you really excited? You know what? I'm struggling to remember a time I've been more excited. Oh my gosh, that's great. We can't wait to get going. So before we even really get started, because we really wanted to, we started with the fact that you're a nerd. Mm-hmm. Why don't you share with us what you're doing with your renovation? My ultimate nerd trophy that yes. I somehow acquired. Yes. Okay, so I don't know if you've seen uh, Alex Garland did this TV series called Devs. Uh, and it was amazing. It was all about free will and about quantum computers and about whether the universe is deterministic. It's like the ultimate sort of nerd treat. Anyway, the central character in that series is a quantum computer and it's really beautiful. It's like gold and spindly and twinkly and it's, it moves around and it's absolutely amazing. It looks very much like the real IBM uh, quantum computing cooling stack. It looks really similar to that. Anyway, somehow, and I'm still not quite sure how, I now own it. What, how did, <laughs> what do you currently... mean you don't know how? It just appears. So I... oh, ta-da, open the front door. There it is. There is a giant quantum computer. <laughs> I mean, sort of. I was like in a room when a conversation was happening um, where they, a couple of people were like, we don't know what to do with this quantum computer. And I was like, well, I'll have it. I mean, obviously, why not? Sort of, kind of not serious, but um, also, I mean, you're not going to turn it down, are you? And then all of a sudden, I had this like production manager emailing me, handing over details about the storage unit it was in, all of this different kind of stuff. Anyway, so the reason <laughs> the reason why I'm going ahead with this is that um, I'm doing up my house. I'm, that's why I'm a renovationist. Rev, rev, um, yep, yep. And uh, just the way that we're doing up our house, we've got like this house is very thin, but it's very tall. So we're like doing this little vault, like a two floor vault. And we're going to hang, we're going to dangle this quantum computer um, from the ceiling, like the most elaborate chandelier that has ever existed um, over our two story vault in our house. And it's the most stupid thing I've ever, I have to take the wall off my house to to get it in. I was going to say, is it purpose built or are you actually building your house around this ridiculous (laughs) computer? I mean, sort of. You know how people say, like, renovations, once they get started, they sort of take on a life of their own and they yep. get really out of hand. Yep. I mean, that, but plus a quantum computer. <laughs> that is ridiculous. But anyway, you know, I do like the idea of one day sitting there in my kitchen, um, you know, sipping a glass of something cold and looking up at this, like, omniscient being. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're, um, we're getting into this whole podcast, what I want to do is... To get things started, we're going to put you on the spot and we're going to make you finish this sentence. AI will dot, 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 dot. You're really leaving that open-ended there, aren't you? Super (laughs) open-ended. Yeah. All right. So I think that there's that old saying that when it comes to new technology, we tend to to underestimate the long-term impact of it and overestimate the short-term impact. Mm. Um, And I think that 
it's also true of AI, right? I think that like, especially when, you know, the the, the latest uh, machine vision came into being and everyone was very excited and everyone started talking about Terminator again. I think all of that stuff is, um, is sort of more fantasy than reality, I think, certainly in the short term. But I do think that something has really fundamentally changed about our world um, with the explosion of data and with the capacity to be able to analyze it in the way that uh, just, you know, even a really short time ago was 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 just beyond fantasy. I think that our world has fundamentally changed. And I think that um, AI has a really big part in that. Has it accelerated in the last few years? Do you see it picking up the, the AI assistance or is it just steadily exponentially like technology just continuing along? I think it is. I think it is gathering pace. I do think that you are on these exponential curves. I think you're right. I mean, it's like Moore's law is the one that everyone used mm. to talk about, you know, of the, the, the sort of the physical limitations of what could be computed um, based on the way that you can design processes. And I think that um, now we're really at a stage where actually processing power isn't really an issue anymore. And like data collection, having big gaps in data isn't really an issue anymore. Um, and I think that we are still at a point where people are still... Um, I guess, like techniques of finding their feet, as it were. Mm. Um, but I think that this stuff is only going to increase. I think, you know, we're on a one-way street, basically. Your whole premise of your book, when I was reading the book, um, which is amazing for me because I have an attention span of a goldfish. So finishing <laughs> the book um, is good, especially on a Kindle because it reminds you where you are when you come back to it. Um, but you have so many great stories in this book that talk about how AI is already helping us. Are there any favorites? that you go, I love that. Oh gosh, um, I mean, there's so many. Okay, so actually my favorite my favorite story about how AI is already helping us, I think it's not in my book, no. um, but it's like, it's my favorite thing ever. Okay, so it's, it's the story that starts with um, this. <laughs> uh, the, if you look at the data for the ratio of baby boys and baby girls, right? Yeah. And you look at it, how it changes over time, there's like these really clear patterns that appear. Um, so the first, is that it's not 50-50, right? Slightly more baby boys are born than girls. And uh, the second thing is that this ratio really changes very dramatically over time. And in particular, in pretty much whichever country you go to, there is a spike in the number of baby boys that are born immediately after a war. Okay, now this is like this really strange phenomenon, right? That people were like, what the hell is going on? Anyway, it turns out um, that the reason why this happens is that the chances of conceiving a male or a female child, uh, they change really, really subtly depending on when in your cycle you conceive, right? So ever so slightly earlier means you're ever so slightly more likely to have a, uh, a baby boy. So this is like tiny, right? Tiny probabilities here. So um, you can't really game this if you yeah if you i was gonna say to, can you, know, you program then, it? So, yeah, you can't really like at the level of an individual you can't really do it right. but when you scale up to a population you see this pattern really clearly um anyway turns out uh, some scientists were doing some investigations turns out right the same is true of cows so that the cows uh the chance of a cow conceiving a male or a female calf also really really subtly change depending on when in the heat cycle that cow conceives so this is something that you can game because if you've got like a, a herd that is big enough or maybe you've got stock that are sort of valuable enough, these are numbers that you might start wanting to play with. So the only slight problem, right, with like working out the moment for optimal insemination to give you a female calf, which is obviously the most profitable thing if you're a farmer, is that this window is really tiny. So cows are only pregnant for about eight, uh, cows are only in heat, sorry, for about 18 hours. 
And um, there's no real giveaway that they, they're in heat, except for the fact that when a cow goes into heat, she gets up and she goes and has a walk around, just like a bit sort of stressed out. So she goes and has a bit of a walk. Um, so <laughs> essentially, you might see where I'm going with this. But basically, if you put a pedometer on a cow, right, um, and you monitor their step count, you can detect automatically this moment that they go into heat and then like oh. essentially send an alert for the perfect moment for, for optimal insemination. Release and like gain the, the world to give you more female cows. What? Are you serious? Cool, That's really cool. How did you learn yeah. that? Yeah. I don't, I, I just read <laughs> a lot. I just read just a lot. Read stuff? <laughs> Actually, there's a, so there's a farm down in, um, in Somerset um, that I uh, was <laughs> talking to um, for, a, for a project that I was working on. And um, they've like taken this whole thing to like another level, right? So they've got mm. essentially 5G connected cows, right? <laughs> like, oh, it's yeah. extremely impressive. So they've got like these cows, they basically wear like neck collars um, that have got, you know, essentially oyster cards, which is like a London thing, forgive me. Yeah, yeah, I know, like, them. I know them. Travel cards, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it like means that they can choose when to go in and get milked and they can like, um, I mean, it's, it's just amazing, right? Like they can go and get a massage if they want to. Um, like, I mean, the, the, the impact that technology is having on even something like farming, I think is really remarkable. So you know where I'm going to go with this, don't you? No, I don't think I do. So <laughs> if we can do it for cows, we can't do it right now for humans, but would it be possible if we had embedded technology within us? What so is in to improve our fertility? Yeah, and timing, and so that you were like, right, get the probabilities right, and then if humans signed up for the study, which is uh, possible, we could end up playing I, Mother Nature. I mean, you say you say that we're not doing this already, but I think you know we sort of are, right? Like there are there are wristbands that you can wear that monitor your temperature and check the moment, uh, you know, and link to a smartphone um, app and tell you, you you know the moment when you're ovulating. I mean, I think the main thing in humans is like uh, ensuring that you maximise the chances of of, uh, of conception rather than necessarily gaming it to be male or female. The probability yeah. with really tiny probabilities, right? So we had a host once. Uh, Ellen, who's an Australian, and um, she's an AI expert as well. Um, she was using the app and uh, it inaccurately uh, told her about her yeah. cycle and she fell pregnant. And um, she told <laughs> us on the podcast. And I go, that's the best example of AI algorithms failing ever. Yeah. She was happy to have the baby, so yeah, I should have yeah. pointed that out. <laughs> Yeah, but still, that's yeah. the thing, right? Yeah. It's like the trust in these systems. That Just to, to sort of yeah. extend that thought, there's um, an example that I give in the book about how um, we sort of think that um, algorithms that track our behavior online and serve us up relevant adverts, we sort of think of this stuff as quite innocuous. We sort of mm. think of it as not particularly... You know, there's no heart. Okay, so I there's a pair of slippers that stalk me around the internet. Like, who really cares? Mm. But actually, there are lots of stories now of women who um, had a miscarriage or maybe even a stillbirth, and that sort of virtual pregnancy continues on without them. Mm. Um, and you know, when it comes to the due date, they're served adverts about um, you know cots and and baby blankets and all of this different kind of stuff. Um, and I think that's really like there's something really. Um, like deeply upsetting about that actually when I, when technology can go wrong in that way yeah you mentioned that because you talk a lot about the manipulation that can come and how the advertising work and how these data uh, brokers are working and selling your information and how much information they have on you 
that's where you sort of get to the whole light. Well, you should have to explain the algorithm and you should, as a person, potentially have control to be able to turn it off. I definitely think that's the key point. So this is something I noticed myself, actually. So I had cancer quite recently. I'm all fine now, but had cancer. And I, I noticed I have, you know, ad blockers up to my eyeballs, right? Like I never accept cookies. I'm really careful as far as I possibly can be. Uh, and I'm quite tech savvy too, right? Like as far as I possibly can be, I am very careful to minimize the amount of intrusion of these algorithms. And yet inevitably if you're googling what happens when you have this cancer whatever like this kind of stuff um you know you see you you see the repercussions of that in the things that you're served and the the big thing that i noticed was i would go on tiktok just to like watch a few videos pass some time you know take your mind off things and tiktok started serving me cancer videos can like cancer video cancer video cancer video and it was like i don't want this like this feels really invasive mm. and you need to have it's like you feel like you want to have a button where you say, okay, um, like turn this off. Like this is, this feels really invasive. And I think that if you had, I don't think that the, you know, the, the algorithms about, um, uh, you know, the adverts that you're served uh, necessarily need to be completely transparent. I think, but I think you need to know what people know about you and have the option to turn it off. I think that's really the big thing. Yeah, and it's not very well broadcast. I mean, you know, accept cookies. No one's read like the the clicking of accept cookies all the time. Yeah. And I don't know what happens if you don't hit okay. Uh, I'm guessing, Hannah, you don't hit okay. I don't hit okay. And it's very interesting, actually, because some websites are quite decent about it. Yeah. Um, and they're like, uh, do you always hit, hit okay, Jay? Do you always hit just have them? Oh, I no, I feel really bad now. But yeah, I just go, yeah, all right, whatever. You already know enough about me. It's too late. And now I'm like... <laughs> just have it. I know. And now I'm like, since, well, after reading your book, I started going, oh, yeah, you know, maybe she's right. Maybe I should use a different browser. Maybe I should do blocking. And I don't know. I was teaching the blocking. kids about like, I started blocking them from using YouTube because they started talking to me like they were a YouTuber. And I went, no, this isn't okay. No, like, well, because we learn on YouTube, you know? And they're like, oh, this isn't right. What do you think, Claire? Do you click them? Uh, not all of them, no. So Not all of them. Yeah. Does it depend on the website? It, yeah, it depends on the website. I don't, yeah, necessarily trust it. Mm. a bit more suspicious, I guess. Hannahfry.com? Yeah. But if, nope. if it's like a favourite clothing store, I do. But it's something where okay. I, don't, I don't use it regularly. Yeah, so you basically go to the clothing <laughs> store website and you go, yep, follow me around because I'm going to need some shoes. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need jackets. Dress, I like yeah. that. <laughs> yep, yep. Three, look, it's telling me to get the dress. But I'm no, just going to get it. All the foreign ones? Not really. No, I don't. Uh. You know, the thing is, though, I think it's like we're now in this society where to opt out of this stuff means you have to go to such extreme lengths. So yeah. um, I a, a couple of years ago, while I was researching the book, actually, I went to something called a crypto party. Right. Which is uh, it's Whoa. a lot less fun than it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> but essentially, it's a place where you go and um, a group of like very technically minded people will explain to you how to avoid uh, how to evade all kind of tracking. Right. Um, so obviously things like, you know, using communicating via the dark web like sort of obvious stuff like that and like having ad blockers and whatever but there were even people who were like no what you need to do is you need to have a version of an operating system on a usb stick that you plug into your computer and then uh, you can plug into a computer it boots up an entire operating system for you and then when you leave it all goes right so it's like it, you you never existed and I was like finding all this stuff really interesting but mostly I was looking around this room at all the other people who were there at this crypto party just being like what do you have to hide? Like, yeah. what, is, what is what is it that you're so secretive about? Because, I mean, 
inevitably, right? Like your mind just is like, and that's it's a strange thing. I don't want to be tracked, but I'm suspicious of people who don't want to be tracked. <laughs> but that's what I've always thought. That's why I hit okay, right? Because I'm like, oh, I don't care if this, you know, guitar fender want to follow me around. I want to get a fender at some point. So I'm cool with that. I'll just hit okay, okay, okay. And eventually you go, what's that Pearl Jam song? In too deep, can't touch the bottom. I'm like, it's like, you got everything you want on me. But until pretty you much. do care, I think. you I'm starting don't, to. You, you don't care yet because you haven't had something affect you. You yeah. know, something happens to you perhaps where... Is something really bothers you. Yeah. You know, like... Well, you gave a good example also in the book about privacy and crime. Mm. So you were showing how algorithms are being used in the police force to proactively sort of prevent and predict crime, right? But then there was this sort of yin-yang where you go like, yeah, but also we need facial recognition software in order to do it, which means we've got to capture a lot of people's information. And I think one of the stats in your book was like half of the American population. Oh, yeah. It's more than that now. I was going to say that this is probably now all of the American population and most of the UK population. And then it comes down to like, well, if you've got nothing to hide, then why should you worry? Or should you yeah, worry? I just don't know. I mean, I think these are, questions, these are questions that are like so big. These are such massive societal questions of like, where do you draw the line between, um, you know, potentially preventing a crime from occurring mm. and protecting the rights of innocent people from being accused of crimes that they didn't commit? Like, where do you... Because there has to be, at some point, you have to draw that line, right? Like, we know in in the way that we construct judicial systems, you know, in Western society... We have like innocent till proven guilty, beyond reasonable doubt. Like we accept that these are not certainties. We accept that um, you're not going to get it right every single time. Um, there have been like numerous people who've spoken in the past about how many innocent people you'd be willing to lock up uh, to ensure that you um, prevented a certain number of crimes. Right. Like This is a genuine balance that people have to think about. And I think what's really troubling about the current situation that we're in now is that these are also things that people have to think about but they're conversations that are happening behind closed doors in private tech companies between individuals who are not elected or who don't even really necessarily have the sort of training um, and background in these giant questions to be able to answer them you know we're talking about people who are mathematicians and computer scientists who are like setting little probabilities um, and that I think is like where the real trouble of all of this comes in. Yeah, because it's being led by, to your point, it's being led by media companies, by social media platforms. There's not a government body per se. Maybe there is, but they're not going fast enough and they're not loud enough. And I think in the book you called it quite rightly the Wild West at the moment where it's like your data can go anywhere. You've got algorithms that can do anything. For the most part, we're doing good with them or we're trying to do good with them. They're not necessarily being produced for evil, but there is that chance that... Elections are being manipulated, which we all have come to see that that was a case. And the media. So that one example you gave, I couldn't believe this. I had to read it out loud again. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Facebook experiment? Because this is for me yeah, like the sure. ultimate manipulation of, of emotion. Okay, so this is a very famous. This this made a massive splash. People were really outraged about this when it came um, when it came to light. Um, essentially, what Facebook were doing was they were trying to see if um, 
if the newsfeed that you saw had an impact on your emotions. So what they did is they ran essentially sentiment analysis on the things that people were posting, worked out how many positive words they were using, how many negative words they were using. They essentially gave them a score, right? How positive or negative. And then they took a sample of uh, certainly hundreds of thousands of people, I think, um, and they just slightly adjusted their news feeds so that they would see either slightly more or slightly less negative posts and then monitored them to see if they went on to change the things they were posting. And essentially the effect size was quite small, but they did see this significant shift that people who saw more negative posts um, were essentially posting more negative stuff, right? Like that's sort of the simplistic way of saying it. And I think once again, this is like that example about the, um, you know, the the pregnancy, um, if you have a miscarriage and then mm. it, continuing on. Um, it's like most of the time, a pair of slippers or a mattress stalking around the internet, it just doesn't matter. And I'm sure that for most of the people who were involved in that study, uh, unknowingly, instantly, you d- they didn't know that they were involved. Uh, this thing made no difference at all to w- to their life. Maybe they're just like, you know, slightly grumpier one day. It doesn't matter. Mm. But it's the edge cases that you have to worry about here. And I don't think, you know, it's unanswerable. We will never know if maybe there was an individual who was just basically, you know, essentially on the brink and like they log into Facebook to try and make themselves feel better and they see slightly more negative stuff. I mean, I am essentially um, creating a scenario here but I, but I think that these are the types of things that you have to be concerned about. You have to be concerned about the the cases on the edge, really. Um, and we don't know what the impact, the, the 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 longer repercussions of that experiment were, or other experiments like it that happen behind closed doors. No, and it's almost like I guess with sort of Facebook, it's sort of almost a tipping point because I've noticed it. And maybe I did it ages ago, but I just like I'm sick of it. I can't stand it. I'll turn it off. But to your point earlier, you were like, what if you can't turn the ads off? Mm that are being served to you? And what if the ads are then, they've got your data and then they're manipulating you into particular thoughts because they know all the different things about you and then they serve certain ads towards you, whether that's making you change the way you vote, how you, I don't know. I was trying to think of another really, really good example, but... (laughs) But you get what I mean. I think the big one, I mean, I think we all like to imagine that we're immune from being manipulated, right? Yeah. (laughs) And we all simultaneously like to imagine that um, people, particularly those on the opposite side of the political spectrum to us, are very easily manipulated, right? And I think that actually the reality is somewhere in the middle that that, that probably all of us, to uh, a greater or lesser extent, are um, able to be subtly shaped um, based on the type of things that we see and the types of things that we read. And I think for me, the biggest one, the most noticeable one, I mean, the elections one is always a bit, uh, you know, it's a difficult territory. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, the biggest one really is that, you know, in the past, when um, when there used to be a, a moment of sort of great political discussion, we were all watching the same TV channels. We were all reading the same newspapers. Um, you know, essentially the access to information that we all had was uh, uniform, right? It may be that you didn't buy a particular newspaper, but you at least had access to be able to see what other people were seeing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that meant that when we came together um, to have sort of a national conversation, we were at least all sitting at the same table, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas now, I don't even know what other people are seeing, right? I have no access. I, I mean, I try as much as I can to follow people that I don't agree with and like to read, you know, um, blogs and, and and websites and stuff that is not in my um, sort of immediate sphere of the types of things that I think and the, and the people that I um, spend time with. Um, 
But even so, even when you deliberately go as far out of your way as possible to access that other information, I just think that we're like missing each other. It's a bit, I feel like, you know, certainly within the UK, especially with Brexit, um, I think that we were like, you know, playing tennis, right? And like aiming these perfect shots at each other, but we were just like all playing on different tennis courts, right? It's like, you can't possibly have a productive conversation about stuff, um, you know, when you're in that situation. But isn't Brexit a good example of extreme sort of like, because the the next day everyone came back out and started searching for like, what does this mean? Because it was like, they they just were uneducated. And is this, what's the issue? Like, does this, can we boil the whole thing down to like, okay, what we need to do about this is start by teaching the kids. And we got to teach the kids. I wonder if they run school programs to help them understand how algorithms work. Yeah. how they're manipulated and ha- let them have a decision to for them to be able to decide is this what i want to believe am i being manipulated in my belief here because at the moment right. the, the monkey see monkey do they it's all real because i read about it and saw it on youtube or at least be educated to you know they have a choice whether they want to yeah you know whatever that that may be but like you said in, i think in your book you said uh, algorithms aren't good or evil it's more about not what, yet. you know we're just accepting that you know face value we're not there's no accountability in a sense yeah and is the issue because it's the ip is that the issue like is it because you had a couple of examples and they're like yeah well it's the ip behind the algorithm and it was like in that example you shared in your book you were like it was an excel spreadsheet that was done really badly and it probably wasn't the ip <laughs> they were sharing they're probably just like don't let anyone know what we are actually doing because we weren't doing it, it right and it's like, like oh we've been sprung yeah that i mean there's definitely a few examples of that so that was a story about idaho right is that the one you mean yeah, yeah. so um this uh it's like it's really awful this stuff it it's is. really it's genuinely funny. awful yeah. so yeah. um like uh there's this group of um uh disabled residents of idaho who um got the news that the Department of uh, Health and Welfare, I think, had yep. like got this new tool that was going to work out how much money they were each entitled to in terms of their state benefits. So these are like people who were, they had um, very severe dis- disabilities, so they qualified for residential care. Yep. But they chosen instead they wanted to stay at home with their families and their friends and in their community. And so this money was like really important to them to, to keep their independence. Anyway, so this budget tool... It was basically like spitting out numbers at random, right? And some people end up with more money. Some people end up less. They're like, what the hell? No idea what's going on here. Um, So they like uh, got together to file this class action lawsuit. And they'd sort of been told that this thing was this really sophisticated machine, that this thing was this really sophisticated, intelligent algorithm. Like, you know, they were kind of led to believe that there was this beautiful AI. And actually it was just a really crappy Excel spreadsheet. And and my favorite thing about that whole story is that the the formulas, um, the maths in the spreadsheet was so bad that the judge said it was unconstitutional. And I really love the idea of there being unconstitutional mathematics. That makes me extremely happy. But I think that like, I think to your point about um, teaching this stuff in schools, I think it's not so much, um, as you said, Claire, right? It's not about saying like these algorithms are bad. Mm. I think it's a lot about demystifying them. And I think that, um, you know, at the moment, the techniques that you need to enter this world, like mathematics, right? Or computer science, they're like over there in the corner with the professional nerds, right? Like that's where, that's kind of where it belongs in dusty textbooks, you know, on the, on the shelf. 
And I think that as the world is changing and embracing this stuff, you know, I gave you an example earlier about how this stuff is really integral to the future of farming. Mm. And I think that actually what we really need to be doing is starting to integrate this stuff into every possible aspect of the curriculum. You know, if you're doing a history um, and you look at the data from the old Bailey and you look at how language changes in the cases over time and, you know, how it used to be about um, how people used to care much more about property and now they care much more about harm against the person. Um, you know, I think that if you're doing geography, you can look at like the data of how people in cities are changing and, uh, and and movement. You know, like I think there's like endless possibilities of integrating this stuff into the curriculum across the board. And I think only by doing that will you highlight just how powerful it is, um, but also really highlight how flawed it is, too. And I think that uh, by doing that, you can stop people really being led down this gun path and thinking that this stuff is capable of some kind of magic, um, as in the case of Idaho, right? Like the, the ultimate yep. story there was not so much that there was a crappy algorithm, crappy, crappy algorithms and nothing, unless you have people putting total trust in their outputs and essentially making decisions about people's lives based on the output of machine. I mean, that I think is the real problem. So we... Do, do we need to get to a, you know how they have the Food and Drug Authority or they have these, mm. you know, body government bodies that basically regulate the use of, uh, you know, different industries, building, whatever. So when it comes to algorithms, should they have to actually explain and say, this is what we're using the algorithm for and this is the output and this is how it's determining, I don't know, the output? Do you think we, have, we could get to that? I mean, I certainly think that like, you know, I certainly think that there are some analogies with medicine here. I yep. think that, you know, in the 1800s, you could basically like get a green liquid and put it in a glass bottle and sell it as medicine. No one would stop you. But I think that we, over time, and it took a long time, right? It took probably 150 years really to like um, uh, effectively start to regulate the medical industry. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we don't let people do that anymore because it's unethical and um, and it harms people. And I think that like we are sort of in that situation now where yeah. you can just package something up in like a glass bottle and just pretend that it can do stuff that it just definitely can't do. Like all of this stuff about emotional recognition, right? Like there's so many companies now. I saw one the other day, um, this company that is uh, selling software that you can be used in schools to watch children's faces and give them a score about how much attention they're paying in class. Right. Like, I mean, I find that so shocking and appalling, not just because it's like that feels like a massive invasion of privacy and all yeah. of the things that we've been talking about already. But also it's just based on complete junk science. Yeah. Like you can't tell. You cannot. You do not. It's not like your inner emotions and your outward expression. It's not like a one to one mapping. Right. Like yeah. your face is, you know, sometimes a window to your soul, but most of the time it isn't yeah. because if it was like your face is revealing your inner thoughts always, then there wouldn't be such thing as actors, you know, <laughs> like, like that wouldn't be possible. And so now that we've got this technology that's like based on these false ideas, these completely junk science and being sold as whatever, um, and people are buying it. And I just find that so astonishing. So to answer your point about there needing to be regulation behind all of this, I mean, I think that we definitely need something better than we have now. Yeah. Um, I, I do also think this is more it's more difficult than the case of medicine because I think that sometimes there are um, 
there are I don't think you can just rubber stamp something and say this technology is okay off you go because I think if you could then Facebook would have got that approval in like 2006 and you know and that was like 10 years before the really sort of they came into lots of criticism for what had been going on so I think that sometimes these consequences are evolving over time and sometimes I think the unintended consequences can take a long time to um to really become clear um, so I think that this is more complicated than just an FDA, but um, I mean, there's a few different solutions that people are trying, right? And we've got to try something. Maybe it's the next generation of politicians. Uh, I, and I don't know, I was just thinking out loud, but I mean, watching the, the thing that was going on, the Senate inquiry into Facebook and whatnot, and some of the questions that these people were asking, and it looks like they've, they probably would don't even own a smartphone. And you're like, so what is it that you guys do? And you go, oh my God. And you go, so at least like, I don't know about you, Claire, but when I grew up, I didn't want to be a politician and I don't know many people that do, but it seems to be a much older game. And maybe that's because of the generational gap. I mean, it's 10 years since the iPhone. Maybe that's the issue. I had this theory and Hannah, you can say that I'm crazy if you think, but I think all political parties should have to have, because of this technology gap that's been created, you have to have a certain percentage of politicians in your party that are under 30 or under an age group, meaning they have grown up with technology. Therefore, they have a vote as to where we're going with everything. It's ageism. It's really ageism. (laughs) But I just think this, we've got to do something about the technology gap. I don't know, maybe I thought I thought that as a shower thing that I thought you know one of those great ideas. No, I yeah, of course, like, shower, of a course, good idea. of course. Practically impossible. You know, I mean, I definitely think that we need to engage young people a lot more in ruling the country because it's not like the older people are doing a good job. Yeah. Of it. <laughs> they're too busy on Facebook and TikTok. They're not listening anyway. And they don't really care. Um, autonomous vehicles. I was fascinated by your conversation about this, and we had this conversation as well about like we haven't even got some of the basic algorithms right, or even some of the simple things like you know autonomous trains but for some reason we're like fascinated about letting people get into cars at 100 kilometers an hour and expect them to be able to cater for all the different permutations but surely japan's doing that like what autonomous trains Don't oh yeah they're doing it yeah. for sure right. i mean some of us are doing autonomous trains someone reminded me remember the train that went from that part of the of the <laughs> airport to the other one there was no one driving it and i was like what no one driving the one-stop train um but autonomous trains that's so i think that's so inter- okay so autonomous trains have been around for a while yeah okay. um but i think the thing is is that like in the world the only things that are autonomous that are like truly automated are ones where the environment around them is so constrained as to make it appear as though they're autonomous, right? So trains, it's like they run on a track. Nothing else is allowed to go on the track. There's only one train at a time. You know, it's like, yes, in that really heavily constrained environment, they can be automated. And like, same with autopilot, you know, like Mm. the sky is not filled with pedestrians or like drunk people at 3 a.m. trying to cross the road without looking. Or kangaroos, which Volvo had an issue with. Kangaroos, right? Yeah. What's that hopping I mean, thing? This, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. This is not, you do not have to worry about sky kangaroos. Yes, no sky kangaroos. <laughs> so therefore it's possible because most people would think an autopilot on a plane would be really, really hard. But to your point, no, it's a very controlled environment. Yeah, because you have a global system of air traffic control, which is highly regulated um, and you are essentially like point it in that direction and stay in that direction and keep on going, you know, Um, and you have people monitoring the progress the entire time. And I think that, you know, it's only in that environment that you can really have automation. Um, And I think that with cars, so don't get me wrong, right? I think that like when you have 
autonomous cars driving around a campus, for example, mm -hmm. which is again heavily um, constrained uh, and and you know uh, tightly controlled in terms of where you know no extra noise can come in from. I think that stuff can happen, but we're slightly sold this idea. Although I think people have woken up to the fact this is not really going to happen, right? We've been slightly sold this idea that like I'll be able to. Uh, in a short period of time, have my car waiting out front for me and drive down Lewisham High Street, right? With like all of the noise and all of the like kerfuffle and all of the people at nine o'clock in the morning and and I'll be sitting in the back like tapping away on my laptop or whatever. Like it's just, you know, I, it, it's, I, it's not gonna happen. Certainly not anytime soon. Unless there are dedicated roads for autonomous cars, I just don't think it's gonna happen. Cause I didn't know that, right? I didn't, I mean, I, I did know that. I knew that the autonomous vehicles aren't really there, but I didn't know that some of the autonomous vehicles are in a controlled environment like the Google one that um, you, you shared in your book. Um, but uh, the autonomous vehicles then, isn't that another example of explainable AI? Like have they got themselves too far ahead, made the public believe that it is possible to get into your Tesla or new Mercedes, BMW, whatever, and actually trust it and be okay because people are, I mean, recently someone did, they died. They weren't looking mm. at the road. So they must have, they must have thought that this thing can do it. Okay, but I think though, just coming back to what you were saying earlier, in fact, what Claire was saying, right, about how the real issue there is about trust. And I think that in many ways, this is the exact same story as that Idaho thing. Like you had a crappy algorithm in yeah. Idaho and people trusted it and then therefore it became a problem. And I think that actually having things like, so I drive a Tesla. I mean, I have it in chill mode or that's the kind of driver I am, right? <laughs> but like, There's a the, mode called chill? It's for basically like, old lady drivers like me <laughs> um, but like the thing is is that this you know the what it can do um what those cars are capable of doing is filling in the flaws in humans yeah. uh driving right so like things people are really bad at we're really bad at like paying attention all the time really like amazingly not getting distracted um, really bad at being like completely aware of our surroundings and we're really bad at performing under pressure and I think that like when you've got this monitoring system in the background that's like looking out for danger and reacting you know uh, without sort of feeling anxious or like suddenly panicking um, you know a, a sort of guardian system as it were then I think that's something that's really positive where the problem comes in is where people mistake that and over trust it for something that it's not capable of doing yeah I think that I mean that really for me like it's like that that sort of interface between like humans and technology it's not so much like how good is the technology because I think that technology is by by like definition going to be flawed right these are, these are not systems that are perfect these are systems that are capable of making mistakes and so I think that like you can push for perfection as much as you want, it, it, but you have to accept that it's unachievable. And then I think the real problem comes in of the question of what happens when you start putting flawed machines in positions of power and knowing that you can't trust humans to know uh, when to sort of step aside from them or, 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 or humans have this like bias where they, they over trust them. Yep.
You, you hit a really, really good point. And this is the premise of making sure that the AI is there as an assistant. And when you talked about those mm. autonomous vehicles, you also included in the book that they're far safer than anything else because they provide the beeping, the automatic braking, the, they tell you all these things that could possibly go wrong and they eliminate many different accidents. There was like the example of Volvo that didn't have any accidents in the space mm. of three years. So I think that's it, right? That's the, and then you also touched on use this algorithms and the software to help humans with what we're not good at. Totally, totally. Yeah, I think this rhetoric of like humans versus machines, you know, Will, will an AI take my job? Um, that's like the way that this whole thing has been framed. And I think that actually you do much better if you stop thinking of this stuff as like a replacement for humans, as it's like, well, what do you want, the human or the machine? And you start thinking, thinking of it as like, what are people not good at? And how do we design technology to fill in those gaps? I think that's essentially the the, the best examples of technology, the ones which I think have the best chance at like being around for the future. Um, I think those really are the, 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 the sort of shining examples as it were. I had someone say that example specifically. They said, would you rather be treated by an AI doctor? Would you rather just be treated by the world's best doctor? Or would you rather be treated by the doctor that's using the AI? I mean, obviously the, the latter, right? Like you want, you want that like human understanding of context and nuance. Um, but you also want the sort of sensitivity as it were, that is um, available from an AI. Like, I mean, I think um, we're now definitely in a situation where like AI is capable of spotting tumours um, and abnormal tissues, you know, and, and essentially beating doctors at being able to do so. Um, I think though that there's like, that one is a really interesting point that or really interesting scenario because i think that like while um an ai is really good at like noticing abnormal tissue so cancer like breast cancer for example so breast cancer exists along a whole spectrum so it's not like okay you've got cancer or you don't have cancer it's like there is this spectrum from you know quite normal um tissue to like slight abnormalities all the way through to like really nasty metastatic cancer so even if you get ai that's capable of like noticing all of the the various um, abnormalities along that spectrum it's not quite like the end of the story so there are some studies that show that about one in ten of us is walking around with cancer in our body without knowing it and that doesn't mean that there's like this horrible silent epidemic that like we should be really concerned about um the way they found this out by the way is they like took people who had died from like car crashes and stuff and then like ran loads of analysis to try and find cancerous cells in their body and like found you know i mean this study's been done a number of times and essentially you find that like huge percentage of people big number of people will have cancer without knowing it and the reason why this isn't like this massive concern is that actually most cancer is dealt with by your body so most cancer never goes on to be something that will kill you your cancer is your, your body is like capable of dealing with it and so um, the slight problem, right, with like creating this AI that is suddenly incredibly good at spotting even the tiniest, smallest abnormalities is then you have to decide what to do about it. Because if you treat every abnormality, mm. you could end up with people being massively um, over-treated, right? You could end up with people being subjected to these really traumatic, life-changing operations and treatments with actually out without ever having you know the need to be 
And certainly if it's you, the individual, like you want to play the numbers to your, you know, you want to keep that risk as low as possible and probably would want to go through that treatment. But when you sort of scale up to the size of a country, I mean, it's not just universally it's just more complicated than saying like machines that help us find cancer are better, you know, because actually you could end up causing more damage than you, yeah. than you say. You see what I mean? Yeah. It, I, I see your point. I think because the, the machine will pick up the cancer, but the level, so it's yeah, so dangerous, to what you know, to what extent, whereas you want that doctor to be, to dissecting it. To make the call. To make the yeah. call that with all the information, Whereas you think that that will happen eventually. No, so uh, so I hear what you're saying, but I also think of all the different, you, you know, in your book you went through like medical, you went through, um, you even went through music and crime and just all these different industries of how AI is being used. The one that I think is the most important is probably cancer and, and, and there's probably more. I mean, maybe that's just my own opinion, but I just go... Haven't we been a little bit undersold on like the ability of AI to actually cure some of these diseases that you would think we could do by now? Well, I just how do you mean by undersold? I just the why if AI can do some amazing things, mm-hmm. it can it can drive me down the freeway and change lanes for me and do all these other things and detect all these different cars and stuff like that. And I know the human body is a lot of different permutations, but it's also a fairly controlled environment. Mm. inside we're not that different really and any abnormality to a baseline should be an indicator that there is like issues and sure you do blood tests and they do the blood tests and whatever but i just think with cancer haven't couldn't they be doing a better job are we seeing cancer rates go down i don't even know i I just don't know whether see the problem is is there is so much randomness like once you get to biological systems you okay so let me just i'm sorry i'm like (laughs) gone down a rabbit hole but i need to tell you this this story because it's like when i heard it i was like my mind was completely blown um so uh this is just like the i think really sums up how bodies are not these controlled systems in the way that you might imagine they are so um Basically, it all comes down to some shrimp called a marmot crab, right? So a marmot crab, it's like a type of crayfish. It's quite small and it's like got marbled pattern on it. Anyway, they're like kind of boring, except for the fact that they've got this superpower, which is that marmot crabs can reproduce asexually. Okay, so basically when scientists worked this out, which actually wasn't that long ago, they were like, hang on a second. We've got the perfect controlled environment here because you can create an entire army of genetically identical marmocrab babies and you can put them, each one of the babies, in their own tank, give them the same amount of light, same amount of water, same amount of food, same everything. And and, and basically these identical marmocrab babies should grow up to be identical marmocrab adults. And then once we've got that, we can like start tweaking things and like see the ultimate difference of, you know, cause and effect of nurture and nature. Um, so they did that, right? They expected all of these babies to grow up to be identical adults and they totally, totally didn't. Like it was mad, right? Like, so they have these identical babies dealt with identically. And when they grew up, one of them was 20 times the size of the smallest. All of the marbling was completely different. They had different personalities. Some of them were more aggressive. Some of them were like more, um, sort some of them more like social. Some of them like preferred their own company more. Like they, even their internal organs were like structured differently, like completely, completely, completely different. 
And I think that's it, right? Like you take a cancerous cell in, the, in a body, in a human body, yeah. and you run the clock forward. One time it, it develops into cancer, but you rewind the clock and play it over again. And basically you have no idea what will happen. You can't tell the difference between the cancerous cells that will develop into being something serious and the ones that will be dealt with by the body itself. Um, and because, I mean, you cannot tell that. And I don't think that we're in a situation where AI can help. Yeah, but Hannah, if you can figure out that a mama crab can be social and they're using an AI <laughs> to figure that out, more social than another one, then that's a permutation that I think, you know, most AIs then should be able to cure the cancer. But, you know, I think this brings us back, this brings us back to like what we were saying about the devs, you know, the quantum computer and about like the ran the, the randomness of, this, of the universe. And I just... I don't know, maybe this is like getting a little bit philosophical and belief system, but like, I just fundamentally believe that there is this irreducible randomness in the world that you will mm. never overcome, no matter how sophisticated AI gets. I just think that there's too much noise, too much random fluctuations um, that, that then escalate out of control via chaos or whatever, um, and mean that the future is ultimately unpredictable. So I think there's going to be limits to what AI will ever be able to do. Which is a powerful statement coming from someone that is, you're very data focused, right? Mm. So that's something that you're... Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's... um, And I 100% and agree with you. Like, I think the randomness is there. I mean, a lot of someone who'd be on the other spectrum would be like, no, if you throw enough data at it with enough permutations, you'll be able to figure out what it is. But in the Mama Crab example, you're just like, nope, no, you can't. Nope. Oh. Um, Hannah, <laughs> thank you for being on this uh, very crazy episode of a podcast. We've had a lot of fun. Um, I have a lot of foot trouble roughing up. That's because I'm really enjoying it and I don't want it to end. And then it's gonna, it has to end. All things have to end. Hannah has a, day, a full day ahead of She has to do things. Other than just sit here talk dribble yep. with us. Yep. Oh, how interesting. <laughs> um, I will close my book now thank and I'll stop you. talking. And maybe Claire can say goodbye. Oh, thank you joining us. Thank you, Vaidhvi. I really enjoyed myself.